I'm Susanna Clapp. I write about theatre for The Observer. And, I mean, anyone who comes to the National will know Marianne Elliott's work. She's been responsible for some of the theatre's smash hit new plays, Joint Director of Warhorse, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, and also for some galvanising revivals of D.H. <laughs> uh, Lawrence, Shaw and Ibsen. And what I love about her work is that it contradicts everything that um, people used to say, and still do say, about women in the theatre, uh, or what they imply, you know, that they're very good on detail. Um, she's big, she's bold, she often causes whole sets to fall down, <laughs> and she goes for mighty themes. So perhaps it's not surprising that she turned to Tony Kushner's Angels in America. Okay, how did it come about that you did it? And when did it come, when did it start? Um, well, I suppose uh, hmm, maybe about three years ago, um, I heard that the old Vic had the rights for Angels in America because I, I knew uh, somebody at the old Vic. So I then started badgering them and saying, please, 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 can I direct it, please? Um, which I've never done on anything. Uh, but I just kept going and kept knocking on the door. They did actually have a director for it, but <laughs> it didn't seem to deter me. Um, <coughs> and uh, it was going to be Kevin uh, Spacey, but then, he, and it was going to be his swan song, but then he eventually decided that he didn't have enough time to do it, I think. So this friend that I had, who shall remain nameless at the Alvic, rang me up and said, we're, we're letting the rights go, so if you want them, do something about it. So then I made the National get the rights, and, and, uh, and that's how it happened. <laughs> so had it, were you so keen because you'd seen it I before? Seen you haven't it. seen it. No, I've, nev it. I've never seen it. I did see the HBO uh, series that came out when it came out, but I don't really remember it. I remember Emma Thompson, but then you'd remember Emma Thompson and anything, wouldn't you? So... Um, I didn't really remember it. No, I had read it. Uh, I must have read it when it was on at the National or around that time, but I had never seen it. Um, and I always revered it. I knew it as a game changer. I was really interested in new writing. Um, and I knew that this sort of set the bar for a lot of new writing since. Um, and I just felt I, I, had to, I, had to, I had to do it. it. It had nothing to do with me, really. I mean, I said this to the actors on the first day. You know, I'm not gay, I'm not American, I'm not Jewish, I'm not a Mormon. I've never been affected by AIDS directly. Um, You're not a man. And I'm not a man. So mm. on loads of levels, it seems like it has absolutely nothing to do with me. But on lots of levels, I feel like it's my story. And I think that's what really, really good writing does. It makes you feel like it's talking directly to you and it's your story. Um, however specific it is, I feel like it's... it's I'm splashed all over those pages. <laughs> Although probably people who know me would not agree. You see, it was first staged here in 1993, I think. Huh. And I'm wondering, I didn't see it then. I have seen it since, and, and of course I've seen your production. But I'm wondering whether it felt very different then to what it feels like, because my feeling is that it did, and that the whole mm. meaning and the significance of it, I mean, you say it's a game changer, but it's a game changer in several different ways. And I think that the, the game has changed now. Mm. Uh, do you feel the same? Or? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about that. I mean, I think 
maybe at the time what was so amazing about it was that it was so relevant. It was so relevant about what was going on at the time um, in terms of um, the world of AIDS, but also politics. It was so totally on the nail. Um, it was so daring. It was so bold. Um, he sort of takes the rule book and, and rips it up and does what he likes, Tony Kushner, but in a very informed way. Um, so I think that's what was game-changing about it at the time. I remember it being... Uh, it had a massive ripple effect. Um, and people have talked about it and that particular production ever since. Mm. So it was quite frightening doing it again because I thought, well, we're only ever going to be compared unfavorably to that legendary production. Um, it's it's interesting because I well I remember hearing about it as I mean oh it, he calls it a gay fantasia on national themes yeah. and it was the word gay that leapt out then and partly because of HIV or because of AIDS and so on yeah. and it would be nice to think I mean it would be nice to think that everybody seeing this thought well haven't we progressed and of course it's true I mean it's it's a half a century since homosexuality was decriminalized here of course in some ways we've come on but on the other hand. There aren't so many plays. This one of the things that seems important to me about it is that there are not so many plays where gay people, just as there aren't so many plays where black people or women count as the everyman figure. Mm. You know, uh, who were utterly treated as they were, we were, completely central. Um, and so, I mean, I think in some ways we've moved on, and in some ways not. But what, um, I mean, there's that wonderful, terrible line in the play when the mother says to her son, and he comes out to her, and she says, that's ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. Mm. You know, it's yeah. an extraordinary change. But, but what, what struck me this time was how, you talked about the politics, how essentially political in a, in a very wide way, it seemed. Yeah. Particularly, of course, perhaps, of Roy Cohn, but perhaps you could say something about him. Yeah, so Roy Cohn is a character in the plays, and he uh, it sort of charts his demise as he um, suffers from a AIDS and dies of it. And um, he was a very particular, well, influential mentor on Donald Trump, um, and therefore his methodology or his way of behaving and his idea of uh, counter-attacking is possibly what you could say was Donald Trump's mode mode of behavior now so yeah it, it, it does it feels very relevant politically it feels relevant because um, you know it was set in the Reagan era and Reagan had a had a um, sort of um, mantra which was make America great again as does Donald Trump and there are reactionary characters within the play because Tony's a very sort of left-wing politician, I would say. Um, but there are reactionary right-wing characters in the play who want to close everything down, who want to stop things, who have a fear of anything other than them and want to defend their territory and themselves um, to the extreme. And one of those characters is the angel. Uh, she's a very reactionary character. She decides that because God has abandoned heaven 
then the hum and it's the humans' fault, then the humans have to stop progressing as a race. They have to stop migrating and they have to stop imagining. They have to stop progressing. They need to stay where they are. Um, and uh, partly Tony's um, advocacy through the two plays, which nobody really ever comments on, possibly because it's quite buried, I don't know, but is that um, humans do progress. Humans need to progress. That's what we do. That's part of our nature. And we prog progress through our imagination. We progress emotionally intellectually and physically we move and some of the things that make us want to move is uh, um, a form of desperation so each of the characters in this play each of the eight main characters find a different moment in the in the two pieces where they hit desperation and they utterly hit desperation and they then have to refine themselves and grow new skin and move on and change and re renew who they are, renew their identity, and they, they emotionally migrate. So I think he's, he's talking about all sorts of things that are still very much part of our political debate now. And also talking about lying, actually, about fake news, really. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems to me that, I mean, in a way, the cone is the, is the, is the heart of darkness here because he's denying um, and covering up. And that, it, it, it was extraordinary seeing. I hadn't expected to, to feel that um, revelation on the mm. stage. The angels, how did you decide to do those? Um, well, yeah, the design was quite a long process. It took about a year and a half mm. to design this show. Um, and I wasn't working on any other shows in the meantime, so it, it was quite, um, it, yeah, it was quite a journey. <laughs> the Angel, um, well, I suppose, okay, so many things. One of the things is that we realised that the, sh that the piece is innately theatrical. It starts off as seemingly quite filmic, annoyingly, when you're trying to stage it, because it has jump cuts. So you jump cut into the middle of a scene and you jump cut out before it's finished. And you, you get the sense that you really want the actors just to be there, to be delivered to the audience. Um, but then it becomes more and more and more theatrical. And uh, we also felt that there was something that was just sort of eroding about the world, that the world was sh being stripped apart, being uh, ripped away, layers being ripped away. I think Harper talks about old fix, fixed orders spiraling apart. She says uh, systems of defense uh, breaking down. Um, and lots of, lots of the characters talk about becoming naked or shedding their skin. So we knew it was going to be theatrical. We knew that it was an element of, of erosion that was going to go on. And then ultimately, it ends up in Perestroika in two scenes in heaven. And one is a climactic scene which is when Pryor meets quite a lot of the angels. And uh, he sees them sort of debating how to run heaven and how to run the world without a god. A god has abandoned them. But clearly, he talks about it being um, after the San Francisco earthquake in the beginning of the, 
uh, 20th century. And uh, it's, it's all falling apart and cracking and eroding. So therefore, we felt that the angel was from that world. She was from a world that was eroding, that was falling apart. Uh, I got the sense really clearly. I can't remember why. Oh, yeah, because, um, because the angel is real to Prior, and we always treated her as real, he ne she nevertheless <coughs> is in Prior's imagination. And he equates the disease that he has with the sex that he's had because he's got AIDS. And so there's something about the eroding nature of, of what happens to you if you, if you are infected with AIDS and, and how you feel and how dirty he feels and how the blood feels contaminated. So she felt like she encapsulated all of those things. So therefore, I didn't want a white angel. I didn't want her flying down in a sort of Romanesque, beautifully flowing gown. I didn't want a big thing on her head. And I didn't want lovely white, white um, wings. And anyway, although I had never seen it, I have seen pictures of the angels and how they're, they're normally done. So I decided I definitely didn't want to do that. <laughs> um, and because it was innately theatrical, I thought there must be a better way. There must be a more interesting way of doing flying, because flying in the theatre, I think, is often quite disappointing. Mm. Unless you're circus acrobats, um, it takes up a huge amount of time. People have to be specially trained. It's really annoying. You've got scenes to do. Uh, <laughs> it takes up all the tech time. And it, ultimately, you can see the wires, or you can see where the person's being, being held from. So I just thought it'd be much more interesting to do her in a different way, which is why we've sort of puppeteered her yeah, and the, the puppeteers, sorry, I keep talking, and the puppeteers yeah, sort of uh, <laughs> infest, they infest the world. Once she, once she hits Earth, then the, the puppeteers, which we call her shadows, who are the people who hold her up because she's mm. being puppeteered around, they infest the world like, like a disease, and then they become the way by which um, scenery has changed. First of all, in rooms, and then that even gets split apart and eroded into bits of furniture and one light. And there's also the fact that the actual furniture, the actual set is, is fractured and mm. moving around all the time and never quite meeting, is it? So, I mean, I got the very much the sense of a, of a world in which people aren't quite able to front up to each other, meet yeah. together, that, yeah. that things were yeah. fractured, and, but always on the move. Yeah. So we decided to design it initially because they're short, sweet scenes, jump cut, like I said, as though it was quite a conventional piece of theatre where, where the actors were uh, revolved into the audience and revolved into the audience. And we cut the stage up into three. And you get used to one side being, let's say, Priors, and then in the middle is Harper's territory, and then the far right is Roy's territory, and they stay within their locales. And then there's a hallucinatory dream, hallucinatory dream where Harper thinks she's seeing Pryor in her dream, and Pryor thinks he's, he's seeing Harper, and they start to meld in each other's territory on the stage. And then after that, because we go into a more imaginary writing, uh, I then take Pryor, you used to Pryor being over there, he's suddenly over there, but he's still in his bedroom, and Harper's here, but she's suddenly over there, but she's still in her house. Um, and then there are parallel scenes where people start playing at the same time, but they're still in their locales. And then there are scenes where 
the, the uh, dialogue starts to integrate, so we start to integrate the characters into the, the whole of the locale. So there's one scene, I hope I'm not giving a spoiler away, where two couples are sort of trying to split up, um, and they're in each other's, totally in each other's mm. uh, environment, and they're using each other's furniture, but they're not in the same scene. They're in, they're in completely different locations. But by then, hopefully, the audience have come on the journey with you. And then after that, we go into a big illusionary moment when everybody, towards the end of the first play, Millennium Approaches, everybody starts to go a little bit... <laughs> and uh, 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 Harper is imagining that she's in Antarctica. Priya's about to see the angel, and it's a really climactic moment. Uh, Hannah's left her home and her and her and her safety net of Salt Lake. She's come to New York. She's talking to a mad woman on the street, and um, we move the set up to, to this position because we're entering to Antarctica. So the whole world becomes this illusion. Then in the second play. Uh, as, her, as the drugs start wearing off for Harper and her illusion starts to fail her and she has to sort of hit reality, we then pull the illusion away, we take all of this away, we take the floor away, it literally gets sucked away from her as Joe walks away from her in her dream. And we're then in a much sort of harsher world, we're in a kind of twilight world, much more stripped back again. Um, we then have the angel arriving, she arrives in a, in a complete room, and that's when the shadows arrive, that's when they start infesting the world, and that's when we start breaking it up even more, even more, even more, even more. And so you end up with people in a whole scene with just one prop, which might be a light that you recognise way back from Harper's house, house in Millennium. But we also go from a sort of cinematic uh, version of the theatre like that in three, and we start pulling out and pulling out and pulling out. We go back to the back of the Littleton here, which is the back wall, and I don't know how I managed to let them do this, but let me do this, but they did do, let, they did let me do it. So we go beyond that shutter, which is normally storage, and we go way, way back to the street, to the very, very far wall of the actual National Theatre. So we go from that to pulling up the header, pulling up the cross, pulling out, pulling out, pulling out, pulling out, pulling out. Pulling out until the very last moment we go really into a Brechtian thing as the, as the words get more and more imaginary, as the, as the writing gets more and more subconscious and crazy and wild and long and weird and doolally, um, we end up with an epilogue with one actor prior coming right downstage, a completely stripped back theatre, everything's gone, the house lights are up and he's talking about the lights through the trees in the autumn in Central Park, mm. and hopefully by then the audience become so uh, used to imagining with the actors on stage. It's all about imagination, you see, it's all working. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that they're imagining, even though they're completely aware they're in a theatre, they're imagining seeing these leaves uh, and, the, and the, the autumn light shining through the leaves in Central Park, uh, uh, just through the words. Mm. <laughs> hey! <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, almost as good, good as the monologue in the play. Um, fantastic. Yeah. It was excellent. Uh, how, I hardly worry for you about your voice, but uh, how exhausting was it to actually, for you and for the actors, I mean, just the, the way you described it just then, just the amount that you, the different sorts of realities you had going in your head, but also, actually, the length of the piece. It's eight yeah. hours. Yeah, so how long. do you, well, <laughs> <laughs> how, 
How do you cope with that? And how? Yeah. I mean, did it feel? Did it actually feel very different? I mean, it does as an audience thing because you because you actually feel you're subscribing to a whole world, and you know you bond with the people next to you if you don't know them. You know, you feel it's quite different from going to a, a show where you, you it's just one segment of the day. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was absolutely totally exhausting. I mean, I've done some challenging things, <laughs> and this was definitely up there. Um, I, you know, it was exhausting on lots of levels because, as you say, it's a long piece and we had to rehearse it all together. And when you're rehearsing Act 4, Scene 2 of Perestroika, and that's taking a long time, you're also still having to keep the plate spinning for millennium. Mm -hmm. And then trying to put them together and then running bits and then running them all together before you take it into the theatre. Um, yeah, it was absolutely exhausting. Um, I think that it was also challenging because it reminded me of working on a on a Tennessee Williams. I've only done one Tennessee Williams, and it was one where he was particularly addled with dr drugs. Oh, sweet bird of youth. Sweet bird of yeah. youth, yeah. And it was a similar experience in that you thought you knew what the scene was about, or you thought you really understood what was going on for the characters. And then you'd rehearse it with these extraordinarily accomplished, amazing actors. And then you'd all think, oh, that doesn't quite work. And then you were having to try to find, particularly in Perestroika, the right note, the right musical tone, because Tony's parents are both musicians. And therefore, there's a rhythm and a music to the way that he writes. And also, he writes daringly from the subconscious. So there was one scene, out of many, but I remember one scene particularly where I was saying to Tony, I just can't work it out, what's going on? And he said, oh yeah, I dreamt that scene in its entirety. And I thought, well, no wonder, there is no logic. There's no like, oh, well, she goes from A to B to C to D. And that's a lineal thing, like most people write. <laughs> It, it's it's much weirder than that, mm. and that 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 was quite scary, possibly for the actors, because you have to really trust that the process mm. will finally get you there. I did want to just make one comment, which was that it struck me also as a much more internal piece. I mean, for all its magnificence and bravura touches yeah. and so on, yeah. it is also strangely internal um, and I, I, I noticed that Declan Donnellan who first directed it here when he was directing it first and somebody came over and lent and, and whispered to him it's too personal and he said that's marvelous that's what we that's what we want but it's very odd that something which is in some sense so epic should be so immediate as well I think yeah yeah it gets absolutely under your skin yeah, yeah. it is incredibly personal I think we all felt that working on it I mean what they have to go through when they do the two show days and you see what Andrew Garfield does and well all of them mm. it, it does it is really affecting and we rehearsed on on this show th this show for 11 weeks uh, and at the end I think we all needed therapy <laughs> <laughs> because it's about isolation it's about abandonment mm. it's about desperation I mean it's it's ultimately an anthem for positivity about humanity because they do come out the other side, the characters, some later than others, but they do come out. Um, but nevertheless, you have to go there, and if you don't go there, then I the audience can sniff it, you know, mm. it's, you have to go there. Mm. 
Right, non-judgmentally, we finish. <laughs> um, thank you very much for being such a thank great you. audience.